Chapter Four of The Beloved Vagabond by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Emmers. Chapter Four. One May morning, a year after my surprising of Parago's secret, I awoke later than usual, the three and sixpenny clock on the mantelpiece marking eleven, and huddling on my clothes in alarm, I left the foul-smelling club room and ran upstairs to arouse my master. To my astonishment. He was not alone. A stout, florid man, wearing a white waistcoat which bellied out like the sail of a racing yacht, a frock coat, and general resplendency of garb, stood planted in the middle of the room, while Parago, still in nightshirt but trousered, sat swinging his leg on a corner of the deal table. I noticed the fiddle which Parago had evidently been playing before his visitor's arrival, lying on the disordered bed. "'Who the devil is this?' cried the fat man angrily. This is Mr. Astico, my private secretary, who cooks my headings and attends to my correspondence. Usually he cooks too, but if you will join us at breakfast, Mr. Hodgson. Pogson, bawled the fat man. I beg your pardon, said my master sweetly. If you will join us at breakfast, he will cook three. Damn your breakfast, said Mr. Pogson. Only two, then, Astico. This gentleman has already breakfasted. You will forgive us for not treating you as a stranger. Mr. Pogson, who was in a rage, thumped the table with his hand. I'll give you to understand, Mr. Henkendyke, that I am the proprietor of this club. I have bought it with my own money, and I'm not going to see it go to eternal glory as it's doing under your management. I'm not like that old ass Ballantyne. I'm a businessman, and I'm going to run this club for a profit. And if you continue to be manager, you'll jolly well have to turn over a new leaf. My good friend, said my master, rising and thrusting his hands in his pockets, you've told me that about ten times. It is getting monotonous. The way this place is run, continued Mr. Pogson, unheeding, is scandalous. Not a blessed account kept, no check on provisions or drink. Every night your servants are drunk. As owls, said Parago. And what the dickens do you do? I give the Lotus Club the prestige of my presidency. I accept a salary and this presidential residence as my remuneration. You do not expect a man like me to keep ledgers and check butcher's bills like a tuppenny halfpenny clerk in the city. It is you, my dear Mr. Pogson, who have curious ideas of club management. You should put this sort of thing into the hands of some arithmetical harling. I, he waved his long fingers tipped with their long nails magnificently, am the picturesque, the intellectual, the spiritual guide of the club. You are a fraud, cried Mr. Pogson, using so dreadful an adjective that I dropped the gridiron. Parago had trained me to a distaste of foul language. You are a drunken, incompetent thief. Parago took his guest's glossy silk hat and gold-mounted cane from the table and put them into his hands. He pointed to the door. Get out, quickly, said he. He turned on his heel and, sitting on the bed, began to play the fiddle. Mr. Pogson, instead of getting out, stood in front of him quivering like an infuriated jelly, and informed him that it was his blooming club and his blooming room that he would choose the moment of exit most convenient to his own blooming self. Also, that Parago's speedy exit was a matter for his decision. In a dancing fury, he heaped abuse on Parago, who played the last rose of summer with rather more tremulo than usual. Even I saw that he was dangerous. Mr. Pogson did not heed. Suddenly, 
Parago sprang to his feet, towering over the fat man, and swung his fiddle on high like Thor's hammer. With a spitting crash, it came down on Mr. Pogson's head. Then Parago gripped him, and running with him to the door, shot him down the stairs. That, my little Astico, said he, is the present proprietor of the Lotus Club, and this is the late manager. I ran to the door for the purpose of locking it. Parago smiled. He will not come back. When he has mended what Flewelling calls his bloody coxcomb, he will take out a summons against me for assault. He threw himself on the bed, while I, in trembling bewilderment, prepared the breakfast. Presently he broke into a loud laugh. A fool! A mammonite fool, Astico! Does he think that Mr. Ulysses are picked up by the hundred among the smug young men of the Polytechnic, who add up figures and keep books by double entry? Do you know what double entry is? No, master, said I, from my squatting seat on the floor by the gas-stove. Thank the gods for your ignorance. It is a nescience whereby human aspirations are cribbed within ruled lines are made to balance on the opposite side. Would you like to see me obey Mr. Mammoth's behest and crib my aspirations within ruled lines? No, master, said I. The gods have given you understanding, said he, which is better than bookkeeping by double entry. At the time, I thought my master's attitude magnificent, and I despised Mr. Pogson from the bottom of my heart. But since then, I've wondered how the deuce the Lotus Club survived a month of Parago's management. In after years, when I questioned him, he said airily that he left all financial questions to Ballantyne, the old actor-proprietor, who grown infirm, and that he was president and not manager. Yet, to my certain knowledge, he paid wages to Mrs. Housekeeper, Cherubino, and myself, and, as for tradesmen's bills, they were strewn about Parago's bedchamber like the autumn leaves of Valombrosa, in greater numbers than the articles of his attire. On the other hand, I have no recollection of monies coming in. There must have been some loose, unbusiness-like arrangement between Ballantyne and himself, which most justifiably shocked the business instincts of Mr. Pogson. There I sympathised with the latter, but I must admit that he showed a want of tact in dealing with Parago. My master was in gay spirits during breakfast. When he had finished, he declared the meal to be the most enjoyable he had eaten in Tavistock Street. My insensate conceit regarded the statement as a tribute to my culinary skill, and I glowed with pride. I informed him that my herring cookery was nothing to what I could do with sprats. My little Astico, said he, filling his porcelain pipe, I have to offer you my joint congratulation and commiseration. I congratulate you on being no longer a scullion. I commiserate with you on the loss of your salary of eighteen pence a week. Your sensitive spirit would revolt against taking service under any one of Mr. Mammon's myriadums. And even if I didn't, I'm sure he would not employ you. Like Caliban, no longer will you scrape trencher nor wash dish, at least in the Lotus Club, for from this hour I dismiss you from its service. He smoked silently in his wicker chair, giving me time to realise the sudden change in my fortunes. Then only did I understand. I saw myself for a desolate moment, cast motherless and rudderless, on the wide world where art and scholarship met with contumely and underground youth was buffeted and despised. My gorgeous dreams were at an end. The blighted commonplace overspread my soul. What would you like to do, my little Astico? he asked. 
I pulled myself together and looked at him heroically. I could be a butcher's boy. The corners of my mouth twitched. It was a shuddersome avocation, and the prospect of the companionship of other butcher boys who could not draw, did not know French, and had never heard of Joanna, filled me with a horrible sense of doom. Suddenly Parago leaped up in his wild way to his feet and clapped me so heartily on the shoulder that I staggered. My son, cried he, I have an inspiration. It is spring, and the hedgerows are greener than the pavement, and the high roads of Europe are wider than Tavistock Street. We will seek them today. As to Côte de Moncoeur, I'll be Don Quixote, and you'll be my Sancho, and we'll go again in quest of adventures. He laughed aloud and shook me like a little rat. Celas te tap dans lui, mon petit estacol. Without waiting for me to reply, he rushed to the rickety wash stand, poured out water from the broken ewer, and, after washing, began to dress in feverish haste, talking all the time. Used as I was to his suddenness, my wits could not move fast enough to follow him. Then I needn't be a butcher's boy, I said at last. He paused in the act of drawing on a boot. Butcher's boy? Do you want to be a butcher's boy? No, master, said I fervently. Then what are you talking of? He'd evidently not heard my answer to his question. I am going to educate you in the high school of the earth, the university of the universe, and tomorrow you shall see a cow and a dandelion, and before then you will be disastrously seasick. The sea? I cried in delirious amazement. We're going to on the sea? Where are we going? To France, petit imbecile, he cried. Why are you not getting ready to go there? I might have answered that I had no personal preparations to make, but, feeling rebuked for idleness while he was so busy, I began to clear away the breakfast things. He stopped me. Nom de Dieu, we are not going to travel with cups and saucers. He dragged from the top of the cupboard an incredibly dirty carpet bag of huge dimensions and decayed antiquity, and bade me pack therein our belongings. The process was not a lengthy one, we had so few. When we had little more than half filled the bag with articles of attire and the toilette stuffed in pell-mell, we looked around for ballast. The books, master, said I. We will take the immortal works of Maitre François Rabelais and the dirty little edition of David Copperfield. The remainder of the library we will sell in Hollywell Street. And the violin? He picked up the maimed instrument and, after looking at it critically, threw it into a corner. For Pogson said he. When we had tied up the books with a piece of stout string providentially lying at the bottom of the cupboard, our preparations were complete. Parago donned his cap and a storm-stained Inverness cape, grasped the carpet-bag, and looked round the room. En route, said he, and I followed with the books. We gained the street and left the Lotus Club behind us for ever. What Mrs. Housekeeper said, what Cherubino said, what the members said when they found no Mr. Ulysses presiding at the supper-table that evening, what Mr. Pogson said when he learned that his assailant had shaken the dust of the Lotus Club from off his feet and strolled into the wide world without giving him the opportunity of serving a summons for assault, I have never been able to discover. Nor have I learned who succeeded Parago as president and occupied the palatial chamber of all the harmonies that was Parago's squalid attic. When in after years I returned to London, the Notice Club had passed from human memory, and at the present day 
a perky set of office premises stands on its site. The morality of Parigo's precipitate exodus I'm not in a position to discuss. From his point of view, the fact of having disliked the new proprietor from their first interview and broken a fiddle over his head rendered his position as president untenable. Parigo walked out. After having sold the books for a few shillings in Hollywell Street, we marched up Fleet Street into the city and entered a stupendous, unimagined building which Parigo informed me was his bank. Elegant gentlemen behind the counter shoveled gold to and fro with the same casual indifference as I had seen grocers' assistants shovel tea. One of them, a gorgeous fellow wearing a white pique tie and a horseshoe pin, paid such deference to Parigo that I went out prodigiously impressed by my master's importance. I was convinced that he owned the establishment, and during the next quarter of an hour I could not speak to him for awe. It was about two o'clock when we reached Victoria Station. There, Parago discovered for the first time that there was not a train till nine in the evening. It had not occurred to him that trains did not start for Paris at quarter of an hour intervals during the day. My son, said he, now is the time to make practical use of our philosophy. Instead of heaping vain maledictions on the railway company, let us deposit our luggage in the cloakroom and take a walk on the Thames embankment. We walked thither, and sat on a vacant bench beside the Cleopatra's Needle. It was a warm May afternoon. My young mind and body, fired by the excitements of the day, found rest in the sunny idleness. It was delicious to be here, instead of washing up plates and dishes with Mrs. Housekeeper. Parago took off his old slouch hat, stretched himself easily, and sighed. I am anxious to get to Paris to consult Henri Quatre. Who is Henri Quatre, master? I asked. Henri Quatre is on the Pont Neuf. That is a French saying which means that Queen Anne is dead. He was a great king of France, and his statue on horseback is in the middle of a great bridge across the Seine called the Pont Neuf. He is a great friend of mine. I will tell you a story. Once upon a time there lived in Paris a magnificent young man who thought himself a genius. He was a genius, my Elastico. A genius is a man who writes immortal books, paints immortal pictures, rears immortal buildings, and commits immortal follies. Don't be a genius, my son. It isn't good for anybody. Well, this young man was clad in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. He also had valuable furniture. One evening something happened to annoy him. Parigo paused. What annoyed him? I asked. A flaw in what he had conceived to be the scheme of the universe, replied my master. It annoys many people. The young man, being annoyed, cast the fruits of his genius into the fire, tore up his purple and fine linen, and smashed his furniture with a crusader's mace, which happened to be hanging by way of an ornament on the wall. It's made of steel, with a knob full of spikes, and weighs about nine pounds. I know nothing like it for destroying a Louis Quinze table, or for knocking the works out of a clock. If you're good, my son, you shall have one when you grow up. I looked gratefully at him. Not content with his kindness to me then, he would be my benefactor still when I reached manhood. The young man then packed a valise full of necessaries and went out into the street. It was a rainy November evening. He walked along the quays through the lamp-lit drizzle till he came to the statue of Henri Quatre. 
The Pont-Neuf was alive with traffic and the swiftly passing lights of vehicles threw conflicting gleams over the wet statue. The gas lamps flickered in the wind. Parago flickered his long fingers dramatically to illustrate the gas lamps. On all sides rose vague masses of buildings. The Louvre, away beyond the bridge, the frowning mass of the Conciergerie, the towering turrets of Notre-Dame, swelling like billows against the sky. Pale reflections came from the river. Do you see the picture, my Delassico? And the young man clutched the railings that surround the plinth of the statue, and caught sight of the face of Henri Quatre. And Henri Quatre looked at him so kindly that he said, Mon bon roi, you are of the south like myself. I am leaving Paris to go into the wide world, but I don't know where in the wide world to go to. And the king nodded his head and pointed to the Garde Lyon. And the young man took off his hat and said, Mon bourgeois, I thank you. He went to the Garde de Lyon and found a train just starting for Italy. So he went to Italy. I have a great respect for Ornicatra. And what happened to him then, master? I asked, after a breathless pause. He became a vagabond philosopher, replied Parago, free-filling his porcelain pipe. No argument has ever been able to convince Parago that the statue did not nod its head and point the way to Italy. For some years I myself believed it, but at last it became obvious that the flashing gleams of light over the wet statue had made him the victim of a trick of the eyes. I think the only serious offence I ever gave Parago was when I presented to him this solution of the mystery. Varied discourse and a meal in a strand eating house filled up the hours till nine o'clock. And then I started for Wonderland with Parago. We stayed in Paris but two days. When I asked my master why our sojourn was not longer, he said something about the bittersweet of it, which I could not understand. I have only two clear memories of Paris. He took me to see Horny Quatre and explained how the statue nodded and how the hand which held the reins lifted and pointed to the Garde Lyon. What more conclusive proof of his veracity need I have than actual confrontation with Ornicatra? The other scene fixed on my mind is a narrow, dark street with tall houses on either side, an awning outside a humble café, a little table beneath it at which Parago and myself were seated. I sipped luxuriously a celestial liquor, which I have since learned was grenadine syrup and water. In front of Parago, was a curious obsolescent milky fluid of which he drank great quantities during those two days and ever afterwards. The time has come, said he, rolling his eyes at me with an awful solemnity and speaking in a thick voice. The time has come to talk of affairs. First, let me impress on you that Henkendike is an appellation offensive to French ears. Henceforward, my name is Pradle, Polydor Pradle. And, as it is necessary for you to have an état civil, I hereby adopt you as my son. Your name is therefore Astico Pradle. I hope you like it. You have never known what it is to have a father. Now the possession of a father is a privilege to which every human being has a right. I, Polydor Pradle, confer on you that privilege. My son. He raised his glass, clinked it against mine, and pledged me. Henceforward, said Parago, what is good enough for me will, I hope, not be good enough for you, and what is too bad for me shall never be your portion. 
I swear it by the devil that dwells in this entrancing but execrated form of alcohol. He finished his drink and called for another. As soon as the absinthe had curdled with the dropping water, he filled up the glass and drank it off. Then he sat for a long time in bemused silence, while I, perched on my chair, reflected on his great goodness and wondered how I should help him up the darksome stairs of our hotel without the aid of Cherubino. The next day we started on our pilgrimage. Why we went in one direction more than another, why we went to one place rather than to another, neither he nor I could tell. I never questioned. Sometimes we wandered for days on foot, sleeping in village inns or farmhouses, occasionally under a hedge when the nights were warm. Sometimes we spent two or three days in an old-world town, and Parago would show me cathedrals and churches and lecture me on the history of the place, and set me to sketch bits of the picturesque that took his fancy. In the cool, exquisite cloister, the Chateau of Jacques Coeur de Bourges, I learned more of the history of Charles the Seventh than any English boy of my generation. In the Chateau of Blois, the salamanders of François Premier, the statue of Diane de Poctier, the poison cabinet of Catherine de Medici, the dungeons of the Cardinal de Lorraine, became living testimonies of the past under Parago's imaginative teaching. He had set his heart on educating me. Suddenly, as the original impulse had seized him, yet it lasted strong and became the object of his disordered and otherwise aimless life. Books we always had in plenty. Tattered classics are cheap enough in France, and what matters it if pages were missing? When done with, we threw them away. We might have been tracked through the country like the hares in a paper chase by the trail of literature we left behind us. In spite of his unmethodical temperament, Parago made one fixed rule for my habits. In towns and larger villages, I went to bed at nine o'clock. What he did with himself by way of amusement in the evenings, I never knew. Nor did it occur to me to conjecture. Healthily tired after a happy day, I was only too glad to crawl to whatever queer resting place chance provided, and to sleep the sound sleep of boyhood. To be forever moving amid a fairyland of novelty, to have no care for the morrow, to have no tasks save those that were a delight, to be under the protecting guidance of a godlike being whose very reproofs were couched in terms of humorous kindness, to eat strange, unexpected things, to fraternise in a new tongue which daily grew more familiar with any urchin on the high road or city byway, to pass wandering days among country sights and country sounds, to be, in short, the perfect vagabond, could boy dream of a more glorious life? Now and again a whimsy seized my master, and he declared that we must work and earn our daily bread by the sweat of our brows. At a farm near Chartres we hired ourselves out to an elderly couple, Monsieur and Madame Dubosc, and spent toilsome but healthy days carting manure. Although Parago wrought miracles with his pitchfork, I don't think Monsieur Dubosc took him seriously. Peasant shrewdness penetrated to the gentleman beneath Parago's blouse, and peasant ignorance attributed to him the riches which he did not possess. They became great friends, however, and before we left he succeeded in establishing himself as a kind of oracle, by curing a pig of some mysterious disease by means of a remedy which he said he had learnt in Dalmatia. Old Madame Dubosc shed tears when we left La Haye.
Sometimes Parago grew tired of tramping and we travelled by rail, in the wooden third-class compartments of omnibus trains that stopped at every station. Now and then pure chance took us to any particular town. It was at Nancy that Parago went to the ticket office and said with the utmost politeness, Monsieur, will you have the kindness to give me a ticket? To what destination? asked the clerk, peering through his pigeonhole. Pablo, said Parago, to any destination you like, provided it is not too expensive. The clerk called him a farceur, would have nothing to do with him, but Parago protested. Pardon, monsieur, I have but one wish, to get away from Nancy. I have seen the Episcopal Palace on the Place Stanislas, the Cathedral, and I have viewed, but I have not read, the 75,000 volumes in the University Library. You know the places one gets to from Nancy, which I do not. I am a stranger in your hands. If you could suggest to me a town about a hundred kilometres distance. There is Longwy, said the haughty official. Then have the kindness to give me two third-class tickets to Longwy, said Parago. And to Longwy we went. Parago contemplated the lack of interest in the smug little town. To hold out Longwy as a goal to the enthusiastic pilgrim to the Shrine of Truth, said he, could only enter the timber-built mind of a French railway official. The record of our wanderings would mark the stage of my own development, but would be of little count as a history of Parago. We tramped and trained south through Italy and spent the winter in Rome. Then it entered his head to obtain employment for both of us, as workman and boy, on the excavations of the Forum. We lived in the slums with our brother excavators, and were completely happy. So happy that though we wandered the next year over France and part of Germany, the winter again found us working in Rome. In the following spring we set our faces northward, and in July destiny overtook us in Savoy. End of chapter 4